just like spinning around. Uh, so, good afternoon, folks. It's, uh, it's good to be here. As Fiona mentioned, Alistair is away uh, this weekend, taking a well-deserved rest. Um, so I'm going to be sharing you, with you a little bit um, from the book of Jonah. So we're taking a little bit of a break. We are in a series through uh, John's gospel at the moment, but just for the sake of today, we're going to be taking a little break and uh, exploring a little of the book of Jonah. So if you happen to have a Bible or if you want to grab one, there are some at the sides and you can follow through with me. Um, but I'm just going to be reading a little bit from, from Jonah, starting off in chapter one. Uh, although don't worry, I'm not reading the whole way through, uh, just little bits and pieces of it. Um, but starting off in Jonah chapter one. So, it says this from Jonah chapter 1 and verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amtai. Go to the great, house, the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord, headed for Tarshish, he went down to Joppa, where he found a boat bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went on board and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. When the Lord sent a great wind upon the sea and a violent storm arose, that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell in a deep sleep. The captain went down to him and said, How can you sleep? Get up, call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us that we will not perish. Then the sailors said to each other, Come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, Tell us, who is responsible for making all this trouble for us? What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? What happened? From what are your people? He answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the seas and the dry land. This terrified them, and they asked, what have you done? They already knew that he was running away from the Lord because he had told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, and they asked him, what should we do to make the seas calm down? Pick me up and throw me in the sea, he replied. It'll become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. It's our first bit. I'm going to read a little bit from the end of Jonah in just a moment, but as we kick off, I want to um, explore something. So, I don't know about you, but I had a particular understanding of the book of Jonah, which was probably one that I was taught in kind of Sunday school back in the day, and it goes a little bit like this. There's a man called Jonah. He is called by God to go to this great city of Nineveh to, like, preach against the wicked things that they're doing, but he's too afraid. So, he legs it in the opposite direction, jumps in a boat, gets taken out to sea, a big storm appears, he ends up getting chucked off the boat, swallowed by a fish, then he gets vomited out on a beach. He goes to Nineveh, he preaches the good news, and everyone comes to faith. And it's a happy little ending to the story of Jonah. Narratively, those are some of the major points that happen throughout the book of Jonah. But from a motivational point of view, that understanding is fundamentally flawed. 
That is not the book of Jonah. And I want to explore that a little bit with you guys this afternoon. So we're going to read from the end of Jonah, chapter 4, which is the bit that often gets missed. And I think that's sad. I understand why, because it's quite weird. But I think it's sad because actually the crux of Jonah is found at the end of Jonah, the bit that we don't quite know what to do with. So it goes a bit like this. I'm going to read, sorry, from chapter 3, verse 10, and then to the end, just to fill in the context a little. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. So that's the people of Nineveh. At this point, Jonah's gone there, he's preached, they've turned from their evil ways and repented. But but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. He became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone down and sat at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat down in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord provided a leafy plant which grew up over Jonah to give him shade to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed up the plant so that it withered away. Then the sun rose, and God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? And that is the somewhat weird ending to the book of Jonah, where he's kind of left in the sun, a little map now to give you uh, just a little bit. You probably can't see that very well because you're quite far away. But I wanted to give you a visualization of what kind of was going on in the story of Jonah. So Nineveh is uh, round about kind of modern day Iraq uh, slash Syria. That's where we're kind of up in that kind of region. Tarshish, we believe, was in Spain, in modern-day Spain, although we're not 100% certain about that. Um, So Jonah here, the narrative that I often heard as a kid was Jonah was too afraid to go to Nineveh. That's not the case. It's not fear that drives Jonah. He hates these people, and he doesn't think they deserve forgiveness. That's Jonah. He despises these people. He knows his God. He has faith in his God, but he thinks his God might forgive them. He doesn't want that to happen. So that is why Jonah runs away, because he wants nothing to do with that. He is just hates that idea. Also, on the fear thing, like 
at that time, particularly the kind of nations, the two kind of northern and southern kingdoms, they were not seafaring nations. The sea was a big, dramatic, scary place at that time um, to live. So, the, the notion that he would get on a boat, leave his homeland to somewhere completely different on what, as you can see, is a huge journey for that day across the Mediterranean, that is not a man who is afraid of dying, because that journey, that is a scary, scary journey for him. No, he uh, just does not want the plans of God to come about because he doesn't think the people of Nineveh deserve it. And before I explore that a little bit more, there is two bits of Jonah's story that I, I kind of want to touch on just a little bit, but not to bring too much focus to. And that's the weird bits. So Jonah has two notable odd bits to it, one of them being this fish and it does in Scripture say fish. I know we try and say whale sometimes to make ourselves feel a bit better, but it says fish. He gets swallowed up by a fish, which he lives in for three days, uh, even prays within this fish. That's pretty much chapter two is him praying in the fish, where he does come to a bit of a realization about, uh, about God. But anyway, he prays in the fish, and then the fish vomits him out. Now, and the, the other kind of slightly odd bit is in, is in chapter four, as we read, where this plant suddenly grows and then suddenly withers like it's there's these like odd miraculous moments that kind of pepper the story of Jonah and I know for some people the idea of a fish swallowing someone whole uh, them living in it for three days like that sounds a bit ridiculous and I'll be fair I think it does sound a little bit ridiculous that's not a thing that we would ever think of happening these days like a fish big enough to swallow someone that they could live inside it for all that length of time they would just kind of well rather disgustingly get digested over the course of that time there's no way for them to survive such a thing you would think and the thing I would add, I would point out, if you're in that kind of camp and you're like, I don't know if I can believe that bit, so I'm just going to take the whole story of Jonah as nothing more than a myth, kind of dismiss it in some ways as, as a, a nice fable, but nothing more than that. Well, I would point out that Scripture is filled with moments like that one, impossible scenarios, things that are, we just don't have the words to explain because our God is a God of the impossible a God who turns up in miraculous ways time and again. The crux of the Christian faith is based around Jesus who dies and comes back to life. There are moments like this which call for our belief. And I believe that we should be using our reason to engage with Scripture, to ask questions, to, to wrestle, like the very name Israel means wrestle with God, to wrestle with the things of Scripture. But there does come a point which calls for our belief. Because as I understand it, belief is what uh, belief helps shape our understanding more often than not, rather than the other way around. So I offer you a word of caution if you think that bit's a bit too weird. Well, where's your limit on that? Because there's a lot of weird, miraculous things that happen in Scripture. But I do believe that our God is a God of the impossible, and He can turn up in miraculous ways. But the other thing I would say to the other side of that is that I've had conversations with people who get caught up in bits like this or other parts of Scripture, and they are caught up in the detail. They're so obsessed that it was definitely a fish. It has to be exactly as it was written. There is no flexibility in that. It is precisely as the words describe it. They get caught up in that point that they miss the point of the story. This is not a story about a fish. It's a story about a man who couldn't forgive. 
And it's a story written for a purpose, just like all Scripture it is written for a purpose. And that purpose, I believe, is to ask you and I a question. And that question is, where is the limit of your forgiveness? Because for Jonah, he hit his limit. Assyria was one too far for him. And it left him in a place where he was alone, in a foreign land, outside of what he knew, sitting in a grumping heap on the ground, getting beaten down by the sun, and we never hear from him again. And I think the writer of Jonah is challenging us on what we do with forgiveness. How do we encounter forgiveness in our lives? What or who can we not forgive? Is a question that I think as Christians we should come back to time and again, because I believe that we are called to be a people of forgiveness. I, uh, I'm part of another church. Um, I'm, I kind of work as a youth pastor for a church in Bears Den. And every Sunday, they, as many other churches across the land do, pray the Lord's Prayer, which I'm sure many of you know, uh, our Father who art in heaven and so on and so forth. And right in the midst of the Lord's Prayer is a line that they pray every single week that many of you may pray in your regular basis. And it says this, forgive our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Just as we are shown forgiveness by God in His great mercy, so we are called to be people of forgiveness who forgive others around us. That is something integral to who we are called to be. And the book of Jonah gives, uh, is in an interesting way, actually is used by Jesus to tie things together. In Matthew's gospel, Jesus would talk about his death, the, the three days that he's down in the grave, as the sign of Jonah. I find it interesting because Jonah's this grumbling little uh, bizarre character of a man, but he is still used by Jesus as an example of what he is doing. And, and that three days in the grave, that's, that's the story of our forgiveness. It's the cross. It's the resurrection. It's the heart of what it is to be a Christian is, is reflected back here in the story of Jonah, one tied to the other. We have been shown wondrous forgiveness, and we are called to forgive. But I think I would go further than that and point out that forgiveness is often not just for the good of the person we're trying to forgive, but also for ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, I know it, my own experience of unforgiveness in my life, and I'm sure I'm fairly confident many of you have a similar experience where there's that person who's done that wrong thing to you. They might have done the same wrong thing to you many a time and a time and a time again. And so when you see them, when you encounter them, or when you even think about them, there's this little like gnawing thing inside you. It's them, and you really hate them for that thing that they did to you, and you've never received justice for that thing that they did. And we hold on to these little grapes and gripes and pains, and some of them are, are more than justified because people have caused us a lot of hurt and a lot of pain in our life, and we just can't let it go. In that situation, at least in my experience, my unforgiveness of that person who did me wrong is doing me way more damage than it's doing them. 
Heck, they might not even be aware that I have some level of unforgiveness towards them for something that they have done. But in me, when I see them, the whole story gets brought back to life once again. Like when we encounter that person, we remember the things and we relive the thing that they did to us. And we're like, ah, I can't believe it's them. And and we go back through that story. Unforgiveness is more often than not a choice to relive our pain, to relive the damages of the past rather than moving forward. Jonah couldn't see past what had been. He could see nothing of the Assyrians that could have been with God in their lives. He could only see the damage that they had done. And for him, it left him in this place where he is sitting in a desert by himself in the scorching sun, grumbling only looking at what was in life. And I I offer a word of caution in there because forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. People will cause us pain and suffering, and we should learn from that. We should be cautious. There are reasons to to put precautions in place with people because often the same cycles persist, and for our own safety and good, we can have a level of distance or whatever is needed there. I can't speak to each of your individual situations. But there's a distinction between um, not forget, like forgetting and forgiving. Forgiving is something that we do more within ourselves than anything else. We choose to let go of what is getting at us. There was a little example um, that when I was kind of doing some work and research for this, I really liked a little story, a picture uh, that maybe helps us unpack it. And it's of church bells. Um, which we have one in here, though it doesn't, I don't think it works. I'm ca- I always really want to ring it, but I'm also really cautious that like the whole tower might fall down if I ever tried that, so I've never done it yet, and I'm probably not ever going to do it either. But uh, church bells, back in the day, and still in some parts of the country, church bells ring out aloud to declare that it's Sunday morning, it's time to get up and go to church, and all the rest of the things that the bells are for. Um, but those bells, those really loud bells, have people at the bottom of them, or at least in the non-automated ones, uh, and back in the day anyway, we'd have a big ri- uh, bell ringer at the bottom with a big rope who's kind of jumping up and down uh, with a lot of gusto gripped onto this rope to make the bell make the noise that it's making. So it's kind of bing, bing, bing as it swings about as they like jump up and down on the rope that they are solidly attached to. I think sometimes that can be our unforgiveness. Now, bells at least normally make a fairly melodic noise. Imagine maybe a more painful one. But if you think about those bell ringers, I hope they have ear protection because they're right in the epicenter of all that. If we can hear it like a mile and a half away, they can definitely hear it right below it. They are consumed by the noise of the bell that is above them. And all they're doing is holding onto that rope, hauling it up and down. But eventually a point comes where they let go of the rope. And the bell doesn't stop. It still makes its noise as it goes bing, bing, back and forward. But slowly it slows down. Bing, bing. And the noise gradually fades. Bing, bing. And eventually there's no noise at all. That can be the truth of forgiveness. It's not an instant fix to the pain in our lives to the troubles that other people have wrought us, but it is the start of a journey that brings us freedom. It is the beginning stages that helps us get there, to let go of that rope, to stop being consumed by the noise, to look forward, not backwards, 
That is what we are offered. We were shown forgiveness, and so we are called to be people of forgiveness and to live in the freedom of forgiveness. Even if we don't ever audibly get to tell the person that we forgive them for the thing they've done, they might have forgotten it long ago, I'm afraid to say. But we get freedom, and they also get freedom in the interactions that we have with them too. Forgiven so that we forgive. I think one of the greatest uh, stories that I've heard as an example of that involves two missionaries who some of you might have heard of before. We're going to put a little picture of them up in the screen, hopefully, if it has worked. Uh, This is um, Jim and Elizabeth Elliot. Some of you might recognize their name. They were missionaries back in the 1950s out in Ecuador. They spent a lot of time out there trying to reach the gospel, uh, bring the gospel to the tribes in the the rainforest out in Ecuador. And they worked particularly with one tribe uh, of note, which was the Waidani tribe. Um, they They were a tribe famed for their savagery, even by the other tribes around them. Like they would, you they were aggressive. You didn't go near them with a barge pole. They would literally just, if you encountered them, there was a definite chance that they were just going to spear you to death on the spot. Like, you did not go near this tribe. But uh, Jim and Elizabeth and also others like Nate Saint and his wife and and a few more beyond felt compelled to reach this tribe. So, they had their little kind of house and stuff that they lived out in the jungle, and they would uh, fly, particularly the men would fly out in a little yellow plane um, to make contact with the tribe. And over the course of a couple of months or so, uh, or maybe a little bit longer than that, I'm not sure the exact time frame, but they began to make contact with the Waidani, um, and they would, bring, they would bring them some supplies that they would lower down from the plane. And, and I think even on a couple of occasions, uh, they sent stuff back up in the basket that was sent down, and, and a, a relationship slowly formed with this tribe. And eventually the point came where the guys thought, okay, it's time. We're going to actually make face-to-face contact with this tribe. So they managed to find a little uh, strip, a little strip on the riverbank, a kind of sandbank, and they landed their plane in quite a difficult landing on this strip. Um, and at first they had a great encounter with the tribe. Uh, things were going well, and we do have some video footage. I think they, they filmed stuff on a little camera to show their interactions with them. It seems like a great response. It was really positive. For all the stories of this tribe, they weren't being the way that everyone kind of expected them to be. But then things turned, and all of the men who had been in the plane got speared to death. They were killed. And in some ways, you might think that that's where the story ends, but I'm thankful to say that it's not. Elizabeth Elliot felt compelled called by God to continue to reach out to this very tribe that had killed her husband. She was willing to forgive and to move past, and she continued to reach out to them. And over time, a relationship formed between her and them. Eventually, she would live with the Waidani tribe. Eventually, a number of the members of that tribe would come to faith, and their lives would be transformed. But at the heart of it was this one woman, Elizabeth Elliot, who refused to simply be aggrieved by the pain that had been caused by this tribe and instead offered forgiveness and love and hope. And in it, transformation was birthed. Because that is what can come when we are willing to forgive 
and move forward and move beyond. There is something incredibly powerful to forgiveness, to a willingness to put aside the pride and the things that we have inside ourselves for the good of the other. And often the reflection is that it works well for us too. Just as we come towards the end, I want to read just a little bit from Colossians chapter 3 and verse 12, if you're wanting to follow along with that. And it says this, Therefore, as God's chosen, holy, dearly loved people, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them together in perfect unity. Something that kind of struck me, Jesus within the Gospels talks about things like love your neighbor, love your enemy. The story of Jonah to me is one that actually reflects what that can look like on the ground, and it's tough. Like, it's not an easy thing to do. Forgiveness is one of those things we can talk about it, but the reality of it, that letting go of the rope, is a hard thing to do. But I think when we're willing to step into that, when we build communities that are based around that kind of perspective, one that is not about our pride, but is about the love that can be shared among us, that is where the hope and the kingdom of God springs up. So I beckon and implore you today to think through what forgiveness looks like in your life. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to offer that forgiveness to and accept the freedom for yourself that comes by that forgiveness? Because that is a place of hope and of wonder and of freedom. So I encourage you to think about that today.